Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. We're here to catch you up on all things health and wellness. So let's get into it. Here are three letters you may have seen a lot more of lately, online, on store shelves, or even coffee shops. CBD. It stands for cannabidiol. It's an oil that comes from hemp, and it's one of the hottest wellness trends out there. People have touted it as a treatment for all kinds of medical problems, seizures, anxiety, pain, insomnia, inflammation, and mood disorders, just to name a few. And as more states are legalizing marijuana for medical and recreational purposes, the CBD industry keeps growing. It comes in all kinds of products, lotions, lip balm, olive oil, candy, coffee, tea, infused water, even dog treats. We wanted to look beyond the hype and clever marketing and get to the truth about CBD. Dr. Michael Smith, our chief medical editor, is here to give us the facts. Hey, Dr. Smith. Hi there. So CBD comes from the same plant family as marijuana. How is it different from the drug that people use to get high? And is it different from other types of medical marijuana? Well, hemp, like marijuana, is, is a form of cannabis. It's from the same plant species. Now, CBD is one of the chemicals that can be extracted either from hemp or from marijuana. It does not make you high, though. It's not like mind-altering like, like THC is, the chemical in marijuana that does make you high. Medical marijuana has both CBD and THC. Now, the amount of each can vary based on the specific type of marijuana, but it will contain some level of THC and therefore will cause mind-altering effects to some degree. How does it work in the body? Are there other physical effects that people would feel from taking it? Well, our bodies actually have receptors on certain cells that the CBD can bind to. So the CBD binds to the receptors on the surface of those cells, and that's how it actually affects certain bodily functions like sleep, our perception of pain, seizure activity, levels of anxiety, etc. But as I mentioned, it won't make you feel high. It's not what we call psychoactive. But that said, it can still have a calming effect. It may make you feel more relaxed, but you're not likely to feel too much more than that. Now, if you're having certain issues like nausea or pain, you might actually see those types of things improve somewhat. Okay, interesting. And obviously, we mentioned the many conditions that people are talking about uh, that CBD is supposed to help. Anxiety, insomnia, inflammation, things like that. What does the research say about the effects that it has? Well, here's where the problem lies. So for the bulk of these conditions and uses, there's little to no evidence that it actually helps at all. For certain rare causes of epilepsy, those are the only uses where the FDA has deemed there to be enough evidence to approve its use. But if you scour around the internet, you'd think that CBD is some type of miracle cure. But it is being studied for a wide variety of conditions, I mean, including bipolar, Crohn's, diabetes. But if you look into those conditions, for example, trials in those areas show that it is largely ineffective. It does not help those conditions. Now, for others like multiple sclerosis, there's some inconsistent evidence. Maybe it helps. Maybe it doesn't. Same for schizophrenia. Very mixed evidence for something like social phobia, where people are just have severe anxiety from social situations. The point is that there's some good medical research happening in certain areas, but really so far, the the proof absolutely isn't there. And in many cases, it's actually showing it to not be effective at all. So what we're missing really for the overwhelming 
number of conditions is solid medical research. And we need to really understand that we don't know if people are feeling the effects of CBD for the placebo effect. You think it's going to help, and therefore it does. So until we have that research, which we do not currently, we're just not going to know. Still a pretty open-ended question at this Absolutely. Point. Much more to come. And I think we will see much more research, but really need a lot more time. Okay. And there are so many products out there, and it really makes you wonder about the safety and the quality of them. We've talked on the podcast before about supplements being less regulated than medicines uh, because of the way the FDA distinguishes them. Where does a product like CBD fall on that scale? Very similar to supplements, actually, because there's no regulation. The, the FDA has been pretty hands-off so far with regulating CBD products. And as you mentioned, comes in a wide variety of different products. Now, states are trying to fill in the gap, but really they just don't have the resources needed to get this problem under control. So as with supplements where we may not know what's actually in them, we have the same issue with CBD oil. Studies have shown that sometimes they have less CBD oil than the label says. Sometimes they actually have more. So there's really an inconsistency in their quality. Now, so you might not, the problem is you might not even be getting what you think you're getting from the product. Some products have even been found to have the THC, the mind-altering chemical that's found in marijuana. So you just really need to be careful. There are really so many unknowns. Not only do you not know if it's going to do what it says, but you might not even know what's actually in there. It seems like people are always looking for ways outside of medicine to deal with health problems. So they maybe they decide to try CBD. They think it's natural. They figure maybe it's better than taking a medicine for the health problem that they have. Are there any risks to doing that? Or would you ever be able to go to your doctor and say, hey, I want to try CBD? You know, what would, what would something mm -hmm. like that look like? Well, you know, it's, it's really dangerous to think that just because something comes from a natural source, that it is completely safe without side effects or, or even that it doesn't have drug interactions. While CBD usually is well tolerated, there are, there are potential even serious side effects like elevated liver enzymes can cause low, low blood pressure, drowsiness, which obviously could make driving dangerous. We know it can interfere with seizure medication because in the studies in patients who have seizure disorders, we've seen it affect the levels of their seizure medications. As far as prescriptions, your doctor is not going to prescribe the medication unless you have one of those um, severe rare forms of epilepsy for which the FDA has approved a medication. Otherwise, though, it's still a good conversation to have with your doctor because there's a lot of unknowns out there, but there is some research being had. Talk to your doctor to see if it might help whatever issue you're looking to help, but also that it won't interact with any medications that you're currently taking. Got it. All right. A little bit of truth about this really hot wellness trend. Thank you so much, Dr. Smith. My pleasure. The shorter days and fewer hours of daylight in the winter months can leave anyone feeling down. But some people feel depressed in the fall and winter every year, which may signal a condition known as seasonal affective disorder, or SAD. Scientists don't know exactly what causes some people to struggle with seasonal depression, one theory is that less sunlight during the fall and winter leads the brain to make less serotonin, a chemical linked to brain pathways that helps regulate your mood. That can result in symptoms of depression, which may include less energy, fatigue, 
trouble concentrating, an increased appetite, a need for more sleep, or weight gain. Some people with SAD have mild symptoms like irritability, while others have symptoms that are more severe and interfere with their work or relationships. Traditional antidepressants and psychotherapy are used to treat seasonal depression, but there's also one drug, bupropion XL, that is FDA-approved to prevent major depressive episodes in people with SAD. Your doctor may also suggest spending time outside early in the morning to get natural light, or a light therapy box which mimics outdoor light. Researchers think that using a light box causes a chemical change in the brain that can help ease symptoms of seasonal depression. A light box shines a full-spectrum bright light, about 20 times brighter than normal room lighting, indirectly into your eyes. You won't look directly at the light source to avoid damaging your eyes. The therapy starts with one 10-15-minute session a day, then increases to 30-45 to 45 minutes a day, depending on how you respond to the treatment. Some people with SAD recover within days of using light therapy, while others take much longer. Your doctor may suggest using light therapy twice a day if your symptoms aren't improving. There aren't many side effects of using light therapy, but if you have sensitive skin or a history of bipolar disorder, talk to your doctor first. Here are some other ways you can try to manage seasonal affective disorder in addition to your treatment plan. Eat a well-balanced diet, which will give you more energy. Exercise 30 minutes a day on most days to help lift your mood. And keep up with your regular activities, including socializing. Being around people you enjoy can give you some much-needed support. Here at WebMD, we're excited to have Super Bowl 53 taking place a few miles down the road from our Atlanta offices. With the big game just days away, we thought we'd come up with a few fun facts to test your Super Bowl health IQ. All right, let's get started. Question number one. The Super Bowl is a bigger food holiday than Thanksgiving. Is that true or false? That is false. Turkey Day still gets the trophy for gluttony. However, researchers who tracked 200 families' grocery shopping habits before and after the holiday season found that people brought home the highest number of calories the week before the big game, more than 5,000. All right, question number two. Speaking of eating, how many chicken wings will Americans devour on Super Bowl Sunday? Is it A, more than a million, B, more than 500 million, or C, more than a billion? The answer is C. The National Chicken Council predicts hungry sports fans will down 1.38 billion, yes, that's billion, with a B, chicken wings, in one day. That's four for every man, woman, and child in the U.S. If you laid them all end-to-end, -end, they'd stretch from Gillette Stadium in Foxborough, Massachusetts to Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum 28 times, or around the world three times. And when it comes to dipping options, the Chicken Council says blue cheese is America's favorite. Question three. You hit the party and decide to graze during the course of the game. It's usually close to four hours long, so you'll need to pace yourself. If you have two slices of pepperoni pizza, six wings with blue cheese dressing, a handful of potato chips, a serving of beef nachos, and wash it all down with about three beers, or three sodas, depending on how you roll, how many calories will that be? Is it A, about 5,000, B, about 2,500, C, about 1,500? The answer is B, about 2,500 calories. 
Just so you know, that's pretty much all your calories for a day if you're a woman, and about 500 less than a total daily allowance if you're a man. Question number four. How many gallons of beer do football fans drink on Super Bowl Sunday? A. More than 900 million. B. More than 300 million. C. More than 100 million. The answer is B. More than 300 million gallons. That's enough for every man, woman, and child in America to drink a gallon, or about 10 cans. That's a lot of beer. All right, question five. True or false, there's a link between the big game and the flu. That is true. Researchers at Tulane University found that hosting a Super Bowl led to an 18% jump in flu deaths in host cities among people over 65. They think it's linked to the strain of flu at the time and the number of large, often public gatherings, like impromptu post-game celebrations and victory parades, that make it easy to spread the virus. Question 6, speaking of the flu, about how many people called in sick to work on Monday after last year's Super Bowl? A. 1 million B. 14 million C. 32 million The answer is B, 14 million, but they're a small part of the 38.5 million who agree that the day after the big game should be declared a national holiday. Question 7. How many pizzas will Americans order during the game? Is it A, 12.5 million, B, 3.7 million, or C, 250,000? The answer is A, 12.5 million pizzas. And on a related note, antacid sales are reported to go up 20% after the final whistle blows. Question number eight. True or false? Post-football withdrawal is a thing. That's true, says a researcher at Loyola University in Chicago. It's just like any other fun activity you take part in. Your brain creates dopamine, a feel-good chemical, while you're doing it. And when you stop, it's gone. To feel better, you can talk about your feelings with someone close to you. And just like quitting smoking, don't try to go cold turkey. Watch small doses of football on YouTube to get you through the offseason. All right, last question. Are you not planning to tune in to the human version of the quest for gridiron glory? We have a question for you, too. How many adorable pooches will hit the field in this year's Puppy Bowl? A, around 90, B, around 50, or C, around 25? The answer is around 90. And guess what? All of them are shelter dogs available for adoption. You can check out that show on Animal Planet before the game. Or if dogs aren't your speed, tune into the Hallmark Channel's Kitten Bowl. No matter which one you prefer, owning a pet can do your health a lot of good. A new furry friend can boost your mood, keep your blood pressure and cholesterol in check, and help you make new human friends. Your kids, your partner, or your roommate come down with something, whether it's a cold, the flu, or a nasty stomach bug, and you want them to feel better ASAP. And you also want to stop it before anyone else in your home catches it, including you. So what works? How do you keep the sick person away from everyone else and still give them TLC? What about those masks that you wear over your nose and mouth? Do they help or are they overkill? And as much as you love someone, the cleanup after they've been sick might make just about anyone pause. 
Joining us to talk about all this is WebMD's medical editor, Dr. Neha Pathak. Hey, Dr. Pathak. Hi, how are you? I'm doing okay. I'm not sick. That's the good part. Good. <laughs> and I'm fully recovered, so that's good. Perfect. Well, then you have good advice to give. <laughs> Let's start with the prime targets. What are the things that you most need to clean after someone's been sick? So is everything an option? <laughs> I was not. <laughs> I was hoping you would not say that. <laughs> I mean, in terms of cleaning your home to get rid of the most likely culprits, which are viruses, and viruses are just everywhere. They can get all over the place. They are transmitted through touch, and they can also be transmitted through inhaling viral particles in droplets. So really, it depends on what that sick person came in contact, which is probably everything. Just about everything. <laughs> That's right. So <laughs> If they live in your house, they've touched a lot of the surfaces. Right. Think about light switches, remote controls, tabletops, anything in the bathroom. I mean, think of a room, think of everything in that room, and then picture that loved one touching it all. <laughs> That's what you probably need to clean. <laughs> So that sounds like a lot, I'll be honest, <laughs> especially this time of year when it's one bug after another. How do you handle this in real life? Like, what is the real life approach to tackling this kind of a task? So I will tell you, as someone who has had three viral illnesses in the past five weeks, oh my goodness. and I don't think I'm exaggerating, the main things to keep in mind is trying to think about what virus is most likely the cause of your illness, right? So for a cold and the flu, it pretty much is the most contagious or the most likely to be caught from one person to the other through touch in the first 15 minutes. So when you blow your nose, you blow it into that tissue, the best thing to do is throw that tissue away right away and then wash your hands. Other things about the cold virus in particular is that it is not that hardy. So after about 15 minutes, it's kind of gonna be more difficult to catch. The flu virus can live in droplet form, though, up to 24 hours. Mm. So it depends on where it lands. For most of my illnesses, I was pretty much put in one room, and that's where I stayed. And since I'm the main cleaner of the household, I can tell you not much cleaning in real life was actually <laughs> being done around the house. You know, in terms of other things like stomach bugs. That also is most commonly transmitted through viruses. And the most common one there is uh, the rotavirus. And that is a hardy little bug. Mm. And that can really stick around for days to weeks. So you really want to make sure if somebody is sick with the stomach bug in your home, anything that has been touched by them, you really, really want to to disinfect that. One thing that I've heard is that you need to change a sick person's pillowcase daily while they're sick, which is a lot if you have something that sticks around for a couple of weeks. Is that true? Again, in terms of real life, um, you probably want to wash anything that is obviously soiled. So vomit, diarrhea, mucus on it. That is something that you probably want to take off and, and wash. I will tell you for myself, I pretty much, for that week that I had that illness, I probably laid in the, in bed a few days, and then as soon as I was able to get up, that's when I washed everything. 
when would you need to disinfect something rather than just cleaning up? And what exactly does that mean to disinfect something? So this is a great question because it's so confusing. There's so many different terminologies on all of these household cleaners that you can buy from things that basically the ingredients, the contact times that are listed, certain things say that they're cleaners, certain things say that they're disinfectors. Um, and so it's really hard to understand what you need to use and when. For everyday cleaning, that's when you're going for the cleaner. And that is going to get things like dirt, grime, just very topical organic material, dust, dust, and you're going to see that it looks clean. That doesn't mean that there aren't microscopic germs still living on the surface. That's what general cleaning is. A sanitizer is a product that reduces the bacterial load or the germ load on a surface. So that doesn't mean it goes down to zero, doesn't mean that everything, every germ there is dead, but it does bring it down to an acceptable public health standard. Okay. And all of these terms are regulated by the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. Some sanitizers can also be disinfectants depending on how long they stay on the surface. And disinfection basically is a product that, like you said, destroys disease-causing pathogens or the bugs that cause disease. When you look on the back of anything that's labeled as a disinfectant, it will tell you what types of viruses and bacteria and even some fungi that they will kill. Okay, interesting. So this should all be on the label of any product that you're shopping for. That's right. If it says it's a disinfectant, you should look at the back and then see what bugs are covered, what germs are covered. So for example, if there's a viral stomach bug going around the house, you want to look for a disinfectant that's going to cover norovirus, rotavirus, and what's called non-enveloped viruses. And it will say that on the back. Okay. And it'll also tell you how long to let it sit for and give you in all sorts of instructions that are really important to follow. If you are concerned about the cold and flu virus, that will also be labeled. So kills 99.9% .9 of cold and flu, and it'll tell you how to do that. Okay, that's good to know. And I would imagine that these products are probably, um, if they're killing 99% of bugs that they come in contact with, probably a little bit strong. Are there any precautions that people should take when they're using these? Yes, so absolutely, and that's a great point. So you want to realize that all of these products are giving off fumes. So when you are cleaning in an area, you want to make sure it's well ventilated. You want to make sure you're using gloves because you don't necessarily want it to come in contact with your hands. And then you also want to think about making sure you're not mixing ingredients. So some things like mixing chlorine and ammonia may seem like, oh, I'm doubling the cleaning effect here, but actually it can create a toxic fume that can be deadly. So you really want to make sure that you're using that one ingredient or that one cleaner and making sure that that area is well ventilated. Makes sense. The other thing is if you're using a disinfectant on things like toys that children are likely to put into their mouths, after you have cleaned it appropriately and let it sit for the time that is allotted, wash it off. 
with soap and water so that that doesn't dishwasher or something like that. That's right. That's good to know. One other piece of advice I would say uh, coming from having just recently been ill so often is that I was sick and nobody else in my house got sick. Wow, that's an accomplishment. Yes. So I think the biggest things I learned from that is more than cleaning, everybody else was going to sleep on time. Everybody else was eating healthy meals the entire time, and I hadn't been doing that leading up to my illnesses, and then I definitely wasn't giving my cha- myself a chance to fully get well before trying to get back into activities, and I think that's what got me into my next illness and then the illness after that. It's a slippery slope. That's right. <laughs> so it may be most beneficial to clean yourself. So that means wash your hands thoroughly eat healthy, and get a full night's sleep. The other thing that you mentioned was the face mask. Yes. Sometimes you'll see people walking around wearing those this time of year. There are two major kinds. There's the respirator masks, which are the N95, which are basically made to fit to your face. So you want to make sure that it fits appropriately, and that blocks a lot of particles, droplet particles and viral particles. The basic face mask that you see in the doctor's office where it's just kind of covering the mouth, that is drop more for the large droplets that come out in sneezes and coughs and things like that. So some of the studies do show that with really good hand hygiene and the face mask, you can drop your risk of catching the flu. In some studies, it's up to 75%. But if you don't do the proper hand hygiene, so you're not washing your hands properly, and you're just wearing the face mask, it doesn't really do much. Interesting. And mentioning proper hand hygiene, that's soap and water, scrubbing for 20 seconds. and And then you want to dry with paper towel and then... Don't touch the sink again to close it, to turn it off after you've washed your hands. So you want to use the the tissue to turn off the faucet. Got it. All right. Great tips. And hopefully we're all going to keep ourselves feeling healthy and our homes clean this cold and flu season. Thank you, Dr. Paddock. Last but not least, our tweak of the week. Choose a smoothie over juice. You still get the fiber from fruits and veggies in a smoothie, but juices strain out all of that goodness. Most people don't get enough fiber anyway, so this is a simple way to help fix that shortfall. Just remember, you'll probably get more calories in a smoothie than a juice, so be sure to factor that into your calorie budget for the day, whether you make your own drink at home or treat yourself to one that you buy. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Talk to you next time.